This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It is Friday, 3rd of March, 2023. Yesterday, U.S. equities spilling over the brink, the 200-day moving average falling, for example, in the S&P 500. There was the proximate cause of that weak Tesla Investor Day that had that uh, stock in the dumps even before the market opened, as well as some hot data points taking the U.S. yields higher. We saw the 10-year finally taking out that 4% psychological level. It seemed to be holding things back, traded as high as 4.09% yesterday but the market managing to come back into the close um, and despite the the fresh highs and yields part of that high uh, or part of that pressure on yields driven by another strong weekly jobless claims and perhaps to some degree as well the revision higher in the q4 unit labor costs considerably so to uh, 3.2 percent annualized but uh, peter the, there just wasn't enough energy apparently on the bearish side to take this market to, to new lows uh, we did have the pressure from yields, but it just didn't seem enough to uh, to sort of continue to shift sentiment lower here. No, there was <clears throat> not any new news out there in the market. It, to me, it seemed like it seemed like a market that was flow driven yesterday instead of changing to any new fundamentals per se. So we just bouncing around around here, and we we had that comeback. It, I think it shows that there is still as a considerable pocket of uh, of traders and investors out there that are playing this. Uh, uh, on a positive note, despite all the uncertainty, and I think this um, this tug of war we have in the um, I think this tug tug of war we have in the markets will will continue. Um, is the growth underlying growth is that what we're going to lean on and then push equities higher, or are we getting scared over structural inflation? I think these discussions about structural inflation and what it means for bond yields, and then that you know, secondary reaction function into equities that will be the key discussion point for a week. Um, and then, I mean, we show here on slide two, I just sometimes I like when we have a quiet day like today, I like to zoom out a little bit. And you can see here on the, the different theme baskets on a year to date, uh, just to get some perspective of what we have seen. And I think you said, oh, wow, travel is the is number one. And I was a little bit surprised about that as well. But travel and luxury, two very much discretionary items. And also construction and semiconductors, pro-cyclical. So you definitely see uh, pricing this year and a move this year that are that, that are pro growth um, and not showing that the services sector or consumers are being bogged down by inflation any uh, any times uh, yet or ha sorry hasn't been bogged down yet by inflation um, and you have India and in the in the actually rock bottom and I th also think it's it's quite interesting that you have nuclear power and renewable energy being so weak given you know the massive need we have for electricity production and energy in general as we do the electrification. Yeah, and then uh, yesterday you penned a longer piece, uh, Peter, on the uh, comparing, especially uh, I guess the U.S. and and European equity markets, but certainly in the European equity market focus in your piece, and just talking about what actually what a remarkably much more balanced market the European market is. So take us through your perspective there, and you've got some uh, some stuff there on slide three for us. Yes, it's a long piece. Uh, it became longer than than anticipated, uh, and it's called European equities: a rising phoenix or a continuous fall. And you can find it on analysis.saxo or uh, just Google this headline and I'm sure you'll find the link to it. And it, it really came about because from around October last year until now, the European equity market has outperformed the US equity market almost by 17% in dollar terms. And, and that's the biggest uh, outperformance we have registered in, in, in over a decade for European equities. And it has caused a lot of positive interest from our non-European client base, um, and and that's why we um, that's why I wanted to write a deeper piece where we 
sort of outline all the different aspects. What is the European equity market? What what are you buying if you're buying European equities? How is it structured? And especially against the US. And we have this very long-term chart. I haven't, I don't have it on the uh, the slide deck today here on slide three, so to go read the article. But you can basically just see that we have been in, in a monster outperformance period for US equities from 2007 to that late uh, part of, of, of last year, simply because you know the IT sector, the technology sector in the US has been in a phenomenal uh, bull market, both in terms of profits, it's, it's, not on, it's not on thin air, and there have been a lot of profits and, and, and sales growth. And I think it, it has taken the US equity market to a, a somewhat awkward position. So you can see here on slide three, where I've put in the index weight across the different gigs sectors and you can see here that there is a 20 percentage point difference uh, on the IT sector between the S&P 500 and the stock 600. Um, so what do you get if you buy European equities versus the US equity market? Well, you get a high exposure to financials. That's good in a physical world comeback as we've talked a lot about. Industrials, you get more industrials. That's also good if the physical world is continuous, it's comeback. And then you get a, a, a lot more consumer stables, which is um, a, a low beta the more defensive part, so you have a more stable returns in that part of the uh, of the equity market. And then you have materials, which consist of mining and uh, and chemical companies, which should also do fine. So that's also why we outline both in our recent quarterly outlooks, but also in again in this piece that if if we are right at Saxo about you know the new era that we are in, you know reshoring, big uh, green transformation, etc. etc. A new geopolitical risk and the fiscal world. Uh, is, is is looking into a big period with massive investments, then European equities should do uh, a lot better. And then before we move on, uh, I think a, another point I want to show, um, the stock 600 is the leading benchmark index. So the 600 most liquid equities in, in Europe is in that index. Um, the four most dominant countries uh, delivering equities into this index um, are the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Switzerland. And then Denmark and the Netherlands are uh, on the following spots there. And the, the, we... The, uh, the European equity market is comprised a little bit different than the US. So the US uses a lot the gigs sectors, whereas the European stock indices use the ICB classification. And, and that classification has 20 super sectors, which I have shown here. And that's the point you made, John. So actually, if you do a Herfindahl index, which is basically the, uh, the sum of the squared index weights, it's a, it's a measure you typically use in an industry to measure how concentrated an index is to infer whether we you have a you know, lack of competition. And if you do this Herfindahl index on the S&P 500 and the stock 600, what you find out is actually that the U.S. equity market is 20% more concentrated than the European equity market. So you're making, if, you are, if you're overweight U.S. equity, you're making a pretty big bet on technologies to continue to outperform, et cetera. Um, so just so you're aware of that. And just quickly, finally note, you can see over here on the sectors, you can see what has really been driving the, those European equities higher against the US. It's a very strong performance among its banks, banks its consumer uh, companies, the construction and materials sectors, the car industry as well, and then travel, leisure, and retail. So it's um, that's sort of the breakdown of the uh, of the strong performance. All right. And then uh, on the following slide to, to pour... Uh, thorough cold water. No, just kidding. Uh, but uh, just uh, scratching my head a bit on how much further we can extend higher in European yields. I think we had a, a perfect storm this week of inflationary data points uh, with these core figures in this week, especially the, the EU one yesterday being no exception, coming in hotter than expected. And we have that uh, two-year yield uh, in the case of Germany up to three over 3.2%. We actually came down uh, four basis points or so from the highs yesterday, despite another hot inflation print there. And just uh, I'm just Curious if we've perhaps reached some sort of uh, a peak here temporarily 
in terms of ratcheting these ECB expectations higher. Now that we're talking about around 4% level in the ECB for the terminal rate uh, priced, uh, really not for this year, but we're getting towards 385 3.9% uh, uh, you know, mid, mid to late this year for the ECB. There's a lot priced in. So uh, let's, let's just wonder if, if this can continue to head higher. Those interested in diversifying into some short-term yields are certainly seeing some decent positive yields to look at if you're buying some one-year or two-year paper just to park some of your income for for some income-like returns. And I want to point out as well, so the, so the most sort of interest rate-sensitive economies, one of them being Sweden, with its housing bubble that's been blowing up for, for years, um, the household lending there is actually at essentially record lows, uh, stretching back to the 90s when the data looks a bit fishy anyway. Uh, 3.2% for the latest year-on-year housing, or sorry, year-on-year household lending survey uh, that uh, was published in, in late February. Um, this is this is uh, equivalent to recession in Sweden, and we have seen Sweden dipping into recession, but it looks like the negative uh, momentum is picking up there. And their latest PMI was actually quite negative, so the idea that the manufacturing should be coming back in Europe, they had a very weak PMI uh, for February, well below 50. So I'm just wondering, uh, you know, we have a bit of a comeback because the Bank is taking the inflation message more seriously there. But a, um, uh, you know, shield your eyes a little bit on the economic front for those economies that are most sensitive to uh, asset prices and to this rise in interest rates. All right, Ola, uh, we need to talk about China as well, because overnight, we also got the, one of the private uh, surveys, the Caixin survey of services PMI in China sort of mimicking, uh, not sort of, but also mimicking the official data and showing a strong resurgence in services activity in China. We're awaiting, uh, very importantly, these policy signals this weekend with this so-called two sessions uh, meeting that will be taking place Saturday and Sunday. There'll be lots to wrap up there next week. But uh, what are the latest uh, shifts and moves here in commodity markets? As we also saw a stronger dollar yesterday on those, those U.S. yields popping higher. Yes, we did indeed, and it's well. It's generally been a been a good week. Um, the Bloomberg Commodities Index is trading high. It's led by the energy sector. It's also uh, and industrial metals, uh, rightfully so, with the with the PMIs that we uh, we we saw came uh, came out uh, uh, earlier in the week. And um, what we also what what we also been noting is uh, that despite of the, uh, the the rising yields that you uh, talked about, John uh, Gold has actually been doing reasonably well. Uh, on slide six, uh, I'm just highlighting the uh, the key level that we uh, we returned to 1845, and um, what's also but what's interesting as well to note this week where where the the 10 year yield is up by around 10 basis points is that break even yields up 11 and real yields are down one. Basically, the latest move higher in yields has primarily been driven by a build-up in inflation expectations, basically in line with what we are what we are looking for. And if this is the if, if this continues to feed um, higher yields in the U.S., then it may, may not necessarily damage gold uh, uh, at all. And uh, combined with that, we had these very high inflation numbers from Europe uh, softening the dollar a tad, and that's also being added to support. So keep an eye on this 1845 level, but generally a strong week. I'll be writing about that in my daily daily update. Um, there was also a couple of comments on, on natural gas on on slide 7 just highlighting that uh, the market has rallied almost 30% now from the from the recent lows we are seeing the impact of uh, very low prices starting to have a negative impact on production at the same time we also seeing uh, we also seeing that uh, that export is, is picking up simply because the Freeport LNG uh, plant that blew up last June, uh, they're coming back online. So that's just taking some uh, some gas out of the system, and that's basically helping support uh, support the, the the price action. But uh, in, in terms of inventories, they're 19% above the five-year average, and that's the highest um, 
level since 2020 for this time of year. So that's obviously raising some questions about how further, much further the rally can, can run. Okay, rolling back a moment to the FX overlook. So again, dollar posting a comeback there with this uh, pop in U.S. yields. And with some of the weak risk sentiment yesterday, and again, with, with risk sentiment bobbing back higher, the dollar sort of eased off that rally. And if you look at your dollar chart there on slide five, just right back into limbo. So we sort of erased the, the latest little extension higher, but we haven't picked up exactly any downside momentum just yet. Notice the 21-day moving average providing resistance. And those levels lower, that 105 level uh, is the next, uh, and just below that 104.70, 104.80 is the next critical zone blocking the way to the 200-day moving average. Uh, again, the Aussie not uh, doing very well given the whole China reopening and narrative there. We've had some mixed uh, flow of data out of Australia. Japanese yen, we're all waiting for the Bank of Japan, etc. So, uh, and that's next week, and I'll, I'll be talking about the macro calendar uh, shortly. But for now, let's uh, head over to earnings uh, so you can round up what's uh, coming up next week. And finally, it looks like the earnings calendar um, is starting to thin out here for, for this quarter, Peter. Yes, absolutely. As you can see, it's very, very thin. I've highlighted in blue some of the names I, I think are interesting to watch next week and can move their respective industries or have issues that are worth tracking. So CrowdStrike on Tuesday is the first one to follow. I put in their quarterly financials on slide eight in the little uh, snippet there. And as you can see with the, you know, this is the theme we have talked about in the podcast before, the um, global cybersecurity industry is still very small and it's, it's, it's still in its infant stage. Uh, I think there is maybe a couple of decades of, of still very high growth rates uh, in that industry. And you can see CrowdStrike is expected to report uh, revenue growth for the quarter that, that ended in January, 45% top-line growth there, and as expectations of significant improvement in profitability as cybersecurity companies with the rest of the you know non-profitable part of the technology sector is, is under pressure to deliver those results. And as we talked about yesterday, Salesforce is one of those companies that have been under scrutiny by activist investors and has shown considerable efforts in improving its profitability. And then on Wednesday, we have um, Adidas, as they say in the US and Sweden, and Adidas, as we say here in Denmark <laughs> and Germany, uh, which is- And the UK, to be fair. Yeah, and Germany is the country where Adidas is from. Um, this is a company that had a, has a basically has had a troubled years, basically since the pandemic. And if you compare Adidas to Nike over a five-year period, it has been an absolutely catastrophe. Um, and and the, the question is here, so they had an abrupt end to their partnership with uh, with Yee over anti-Semitic uh, comments, and they now have this massive inventory of Yeezy sneakers and, and other types of, uh, of clothing. And, and that had created a very big write-down on the, on, the, uh, on the income statement. There is uncertainty, what do they do with this inventory? Uh, what is the going, what, what are Adidas going to do to get back on track and, and catch up to Nike? They are back on, so uh, they are behind on so many different metrics. So a lot of focus on, uh, on Adidas. And they, they, <clears throat> they had a pretty okay week this week because a lot of sales analysts are saying, this is actually a very interesting turnaround case over the next five years for those that have the stomach and the uh, tenacity to stay in a stock for that long. Then on Thursday, we have Cattle, the world's largest battery maker, and this is a company that is firing on all cylinders. Um, for the quarter that ended in December, so the Q4 calendar, uh, Cattle is expected to show revenue growth above 80%. And you're thinking, okay, but it, it, you know, 80%, everyone can do that if it's small numbers, but that's the case. Cattle is a massive 
massive company. So 80% growth rate for such a large company is just impressive. And they're still tinkering with this um, um, this listing in, in Switzerland, there, which would be their first secondary listing out of the mainland China exchanges. They right now is only listed on what is called Chinex on the Shenzhen exchange. It's, it's a very difficult market. You almost cannot get access to it unless you are a super professional foreign investor that gets certain uh, permissions by the by the uh, the Chinese regulators. But we'll be watching that company because they they're very important for the electrification of the world, uh, energy storage, batteries, etc. So, and then we have JD.com, the Amazon equivalent in in China, reporting as well on Thursday. Very very uh, interested to hear whether they have any thoughts on this reopening. What are they seeing in their in their demand from from Chinese consumers? And then we'll end Friday with what I always call the most boring company in the U.S. technology sector, maybe uh, only surpassed by IBM, and that's Oracle. Um, but we're highlighting it here because it, it, because it is still a, a pretty large U.S. technology company. And they are doing, I would say, to be fair to them, positive steps in the right direction to change the company away from the old legacy model of uh, software, uh, sell, um, software sales on-premise to you know a more subscription-based, more cloud-based. They're doing a lot of interesting things. So maybe Oracle once in the future, uh, sorry, in the future will we once again be an interesting company to watch. All right, and if we roll forward to slide nine, the macro calendar, and I've put in next week's calendar, which is really heating up on the central bank front. I'll get to that in a second. Just briefly want to preview the ISM services once again. Uh, I've talked this one a little bit to death, so just a brief reminder, crazy dip in December that seemed out of the blue and, and just bizarre because of the scale of the dip, uh, dip there, on almost on the order of the sort of pandemic dip, and then that was retraced into January. So we're all thoroughly confused on whether we should be, even be paying attention to the survey after uh, there's no rhyme or reason for those last two months uh, data points there. And it never sort of confirmed the consistent weakness we saw late last year only slightly directionally, but not at all in terms of levels in the uh, alternative uh, S&P Global uh, version of the surveys, the services survey. So all that said, how much is the market paying attention to it? Well, it, it bothered to pay attention to the ISA manufacturing survey and, and the prices paid in particular, which were rose above 50, surprisingly, uh, this week. The ISM Services, its latest, there's no expectations on the prices paid, but its latest was 67.8, so still pretty rapid uh, price growth indicated there in the January survey. However, that was the lowest it's been in many, many months, so it's coming down from levels uh, up in the, um, now I don't have my chart in front of me, in the 80s or even 90s, something like that. They're ridiculous levels, of course, uh, from the pandemic uh, surge. So let's see what that has to bring, but I think more importantly, if you look at next week's calendar, getting quite interesting with the uh, couple of, uh, well, one very key central bank meeting, and that is the Bank of Japan meeting on Friday. It's the Kuroda's swan song. Will he deliver uh, something on the surprising side? I think there's a reasonably high odds that he will, given where yields are, given the risks of fresh pressure on the yen, given his penchant perhaps to surprise, as was shown in December, and perhaps easing the way for his uh, successor to have a bit less uh, of the new sort of uh, normalization process to accomplish after he possibly delivers something on Friday. We'll preview that more next week as it's not until Friday, but we also have the Australian RBA uh, up on Tuesday and semi-annual testimony from Fed Chair Powell. Uh, this was not on my on my uh, calendar. This uh, tends to crop up uh, unawares, but it is a semi-annual testimony. He'll be out both Tuesday and Wednesday interacting with uh, U.S. lawmakers. Could be interesting to see the temperature of the talk there. Bank of Canada, after its attempt to engineer a pause, what are they going to do? We'll preview all these as they roll into view 
next week. And of course, next Friday, a very tardy U.S. jobs report uh, for February up on Friday the 10th there. So stay tuned for all of that. Uh, it really feels like this market is clueless to me. Uh, I feel certainly clueless tactically here, uh, but we're supposed to be uh, getting information value from and uh, I've been surprised at the, the degree to which this market has been resilient to this big ramp up in yield. So let's see if that remains the case. We'll see what happens next. Have a great weekend when you get there. And we'll be back next week with the Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>